We all know that I love making and recording my own podcast. Loudmouth is my heart and soul. But what's even more fun is that it's easy to do. And guess what? (laughs) You can do one too. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Because it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your own podcast right from your phone or your computer. Anchor will distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and anywhere else you can listen to podcasts. You can make money from it with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast right there in one place for free. So download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Loudmouth Podcast. The show about everything and nothing all at once. I'm your host, the one and only host of Loudmouth with the small lips, Loudmouth. It's Madison Marie Hadler. Okay, you guys, here's the fun thing about being a podcaster is that, you know, you can do it from anywhere. And right now, I am sitting in the garden backyard of the one and only MoPro Makes Arts grandmother's house. So, Um, I'm aware that there might be some noise in the background, but you guys, I think that just makes it more real. Like the wind's blowing, the crickets are cricketing, (laughs) the trucks are flying by. Um, and it's pretty great because grand, grandma, Morgan's grandma's garden is freaking beautiful. So I'm in the middle of Pratt, Kansas right now, which I had never been before but Morgan has so lovingly talked about um, since we've been been friends, you know, almost six years ago, I believe. Um, and one thing that she specifically always talked about was these things called pizza tacos. And she always talked about them when we were friends in college and then still to this day talked about them. And yesterday I was able to have a goddamn pizza taco. And... It's like nothing like you would expect it to be. It's just like a taco, but it has like hamburger meat in it. It has pizza sauce and you can choose like a spiciness level. It has lettuce, cheese, I don't even know. Dipped in um, ranch though, amazing. It was so good. So I've been staying here for the past couple days. We got here on Sunday and we've just been hanging out with our grandma. And it's so great because my family's actually from Perryville, Missouri. And Perryville, Missouri is a very small town next to Cape Girardeau. It's a little, you know, podunk town. And that's kind of what Pratt is a little bit as well. So it's giving me very much um, Perryville vibes, which I love. So it's been exciting and fun. And I'm glad that I'm still able to do this episode and put it up for you guys. And also be having a fun time. So that's my life. I hope you guys are all doing well as well. And wherever you are, you're staying safe, you're wearing your mask, you're getting vaccinated. Um, Yeah, so I was listening to a podcast episode a couple of days ago when I was at work. And the host brought up how she had been dreaming of her wedding ever since she was little. The podcast was Pretty Basic by um, Remy Cruz and Alicia Marie. And Alicia was hosting it. And she was just talking about being single and talking about dating. And she brought up how her and her friend had been imagining their weddings ever since they were little. Now, I know this isn't a new idea by any means. And it's always been a classic trope for rom-cons to start off by having the little girl play dress up in a wedding dress. But it really got me to thinking. 
that I have never thought about my wedding until, honestly, even like a year ago. And now that I've grown up and I am the one of the only two that is still single on both sides of the family. On one side, I'm the only single one. And on the other, there's uh, one of my cousins who's also single. But on both sides, it's just crazy how often I get asked about when I'm going to get married or if I'm seeing anyone or anything surrounding my dating life. While I think my mom and I's answers to those questions, and yes, they do ask my mother, have made them rethink asking that question, I still think it's crazy how many times a girl can be asked that. At this point, whenever my mom gets asked that question, she always talks about how I'm too focused on my career to be doing anything like that. And she's always said this ever since I was younger, too, that I was way too focused on myself because it's crazy how many people think that getting married is like the only thing that I have to do with my life. And I started wondering why we have this idea that little girls need to be thinking about getting married. Like it's the only thing they have to be excited about. And why we only ask women these questions. And that's something that Alicia brought up in Pretty Basic. She was saying, like, you know, before her YouTube career started taking off, she and people would ask her about getting married or whatever. She would just be like, oh, I'm focused on, you know, making my YouTube career, whatever it is. And people would just kind of laugh at her. And it wasn't until she was seen as successful that they kind of took that answer as a serious answer. And... Even though I just graduated college and, you know, I'm still getting in my field, I feel pretty successful in my life. I'm accomplishing the things that I want to do, but I still get asked this question all the time, mainly by family members and older people. Um, not Obviously, not really my friends because a lot of my friends are still single too. It's just weird to me. And this isn't to say that you shouldn't be thinking about your wedding and I'm not here saying that that's a bad thing to envision your wedding day I'm more just questioning why and I know it all boils down to the patriarchy but what is the history of marriage and why is it so ingrained in our lives okay so this episode like I said before it's not going to be shitting on marriage or weddings or anything of that sort honestly I love weddings I love watching love happen and I'm a sucker for a good love story. I just have never pictured me in that love story. And out of all the things that I choose to be focused on, marriage isn't one of them. I have this conversation a lot, especially with my roommates who are happily in love. And I'm sure some of it can be chalked up to how I'm not in a relationship. So I don't really see myself getting in one anytime soon or seeing myself being serious in one. But it still begs the question of why. Why is this idea so instilled from us, in us from birth that we need to be in a relationship to be considered a valuable member of society? And why do I feel bad when people ask me if I'm thinking about those things that I say like that I laugh in their face because what the fuck? No, I'm not thinking about those things. The average age that people start to think seriously about their wedding is 21, while the average woman is daydreaming about her wedding by at least 19 years old, or I guess at most 19 years old. Seven in 10 married Americans knew what they wanted their wedding day to look like before they had even met their spouse. So let's dive into this and talk a little bit about the history of marriage.
evidence suggests that about 4,350 years ago, weddings and marriages had really become a thing. Before that, families were loosely organized groups where the males were the leaders and multiple women shared them. The first recorded idea of marriage ceremonies between a man and a woman, I know, boring, is about 2,350 BC and Mesopotamia. Yes, I'm probably going to stumble over words in this episode. Let's just get over it now. After that, the institution of marriage spread across ancient Hebrews, Greeks, and Romans. But, of course, these marriages had no real concern for love. It was all about property and alliances. For the Anglo-Saxons and Britain's early tribal groups, marriage was seen as a strategic tool to establish relationships for diplomatic and trade ties. You got married to create peaceful and trading relationships and mutual obligations with others by marrying them. When wealth and class became more apparent in the culture, marriage did a little shift. Before, a marriage was for anyone to create relationships, but when money came along in class and wealth, they wanted daughters to marry into someone as wealthy and as powerful as they were. They being families, but mainly the fathers of the family. Stephanie Kuntz, an author, the author of Marriage, A History, How Love Conquered Marriage, says that that's the period when marriage shifts and becomes a center for intrigue and betrayal. During the 11th century, marriage was all about what could be gained from the relationship, like economic or political advantage. Consent wasn't even thought out, out about at this time. The daughter was just to do whatever her father wanted and attend any arrangements made for her. Through marriage, a woman became a man's property. In the betrothal ceremony of ancient Greece, a father would hand over his daughter with these words, I pledge my daughter for the purpose of producing legitimate offsprings. Among the ancient Hebrews, men were free to take several wives. Married Greeks and Romans were free to satisfy their sexual urges with concubines, prostitutes, and even teenage male lovers while their lives were, wives were required to stay home and tend to the household. If wives failed to produce offspring, their husbands could give them back and marry someone else, like literally doing a return at a store, like property. This idea was also upheld through interfamily marriage, so incest, in order to keep blood pure, political ties, and family alliances good. In the Bible, Isaac and Jacob married cousins, and Abraham married his half-sister. Cousin marriages remain common throughout the world, particularly in the Middle East. In fact, Rutgers anthropologist Robin Fox has estimated that the majority of all marriages throughout history were between first and second cousins. So, as you can guess, a lot of these marriages between cousins, between family members, and mainly centered around political ties, didn't really have much to do with consent or love. And although non-consensual marriages were the craze and continued throughout history, a Benedictine monk, Gratiani, changed that idea a little bit. He thought that consent mattered more than what the family thought should happen, which is fair. In 1140 Gratiani with his CanCon law textbook Decretum Gratiani brought consent into formalized marriage. The Decretum required couples to give their verbal consent to get married. This book changed the policies of the church surrounding marriage and sexuality. 
Then we'll hop over to the 12th century. And in the 12th century, Roman Catholic theologians referred to marriage as a sacrament, tying the marriage to an experience of God's presence. But until the Council of Trent in 1563, marriage wasn't officially deemed one of the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. One thing that was especially common in marriages was be able to leave a woman or dissolve a marriage because they were infertile. In Christian culture, though, that wasn't the main focus, unlike Catholic culture. Stephanie Kuhn said that the early Christian church held the position that if you can procreate, you must not refuse to procreate. So, pretty non-consensual in my opinion. But they always took the position that they would annul a marriage if a man could not have sex with his wife, but not if they could not conceive. So, basically, if a woman couldn't conceive, that's not a good enough reason for a man to divorce or leave her. But if the man couldn't have sex with her, they would annul a marriage. And if you could procreate, you had to. So, just a lot of mixed signals. For the Catholic Church, though, the procreation of children may, remains one of the most essential things that marriage is about, says Father Ashley Beck at St. Mary's University College, London. When a couple is preparing to marry, the subject of children is often discussed with the priest. If they were going to rule out having children, then we wouldn't marry them, he says. But this is interesting because polygamy wasn't necessarily a problem, which I, for one, see as you know, a sin, an act of betrayal. But if a woman couldn't have kids, it was okay for a man to seek kids outside of the relationship. In fact, a lot of kings and princes did this. Polygamy wasn't necessarily a problem, and still isn't. I mean, cheating is, but polygamy necessarily isn't. Biblical men often had from anywhere from two to thousands of wives. And polygamy was an ideal that high-status men aspired to be like kings. Monogamy became the guiding principle for Western marriages sometime between the 6th and 9th century. Kuntz says that there was a protracted battle between the Catholic Church and the old nobility and kings who wanted to say, I can take a second wife. The church eventually prevailed with monogamy becoming central to the notion of marriage by the 9th century, which Kuntz has later on a podcast said that this idea is definitely being moved around in life now. There are a lot of polygamous relationships and familial ties that are coming back into play. And before marriages was even a thing in a lot of tribes, Native American tribes, having multiple wives, having a big family was an idea that was just normalized, which Obviously, it's not a problem. It's when you start cheating and it's not a consensual polygamy relationship that's more of the problem. And it's when one wife can't have a baby that you go and then seek out another person without letting your wife know, then it becomes a problem. But still, monogamous marriage was very different from the modern concept of mutual fidelity. Though marriage was legally a sacrament recognized just by one man and one woman until the 19th century, men had wide latitude to engage in extramarital affairs. Any children resulting from those, however, would be illegitimate with no claim to the man's inheritance. Kuntz said that men's promiscuity was quite protected by the dual laws of legal monogamy but tolerance. So basically enabling an an informal promiscuity. When women were caught stepping out, however, they say faced serious risk. I mean, we all know the story of the Scarlet Letter. 
we're stoned a lot of the times. So if we weren't already seeing the plays of patriarchy in a marriage society, now we're definitely, definitely seeing that. So by the time, you know, polygamy was ruled out or whatever, it was still okay for a man to go seek an external affair if they weren't feeling satisfied in a marriage. And the wife just had to be okay with that. And the kid that could come from that didn't get any claims to that creating this whole other idea of a bastard child but if women were to do that thing they would be not sought after basically a slut and ashamed and shunned from society so women are essentially in this idea of marriage back in these days a man's property and they were to stay at home and do the things that a woman should do but men could go off and do whatever the fuck they want but about 250 years ago, the notion of love matches gained traction. Stephanie Kuntz said that meaning marriage was based on love and possible sexual desire. But mutual attraction in marriage wasn't important until about a century ago. In fact, in Victorian England, many held that women didn't have a strong sexual urge at all, Kuntz said. And this is funny because even before this, you know, Romeo and Juliet, these ideas of these love stories were always talked about and portrayed, but never actually showing society in the way that it was in that day. The Victorians were really, really invested in the idea of love, that marriage should actually be based on love and companionship. The growing importance of the middle class and new money blurred the traditional social boundaries for marriage. With more social mobility, there was a growing distaste among the middle classes for thinking of marriage as a family-arranged event for exchanging a daughter into a family for gain. Aspiring lovebirds needed only to look to Queen Victoria and Prince Albert for inspiration. The couple was upheld as the icon of a loving marriage. Their union may have been based on bloodlines, but Victoria frequently referred to it as a quote-unquote love match. If you read her letters in her diary, she, in, she is very infusive on how in love with him she was. And this sort of, sort of filtered down into society. I mean, just like with a lot of celebrities nowadays, their influence is so impactful. So think of kings and ke- queens in this time. Being in love made this idea, made a role model image for people in all classes in all societies. Just like when kings of money were off having multiple, multiple wives. Of course, people in society thought that that's what they should emulate as well. This idea of love changed the course of the idea of marriage and the ability to marry without religious attachments. The Marriage Act of 1836 allowed for non-religious civil marriages to be held in register offices. These were set up in towns and cities across England and Wales, the act also meant that nonconformists and Catholic couples could marry in their own places of worship according to their own rights. Apart from a brief period during the 17th century, marriage has been overseen by the Church of England even if couples weren't members. After this idea that love was important in marriages, wives no longer existed solely to serve men. The romantic prince, in fact, sought to serve the women he loved. Still the notion that the idea that still the notion that the husband quote unquote owned the wife continued to hold for many centuries, but this love kind of brought a little more mutual res- mutual respect into the relationship. 
When colonists first came to America at a time when polygamy was still accepted in most parts of the world, the husband's dominance was officially recognized under a legal doctrine called coverture, under which the bride's new identity was absorbed, absorbed into his. The bride gave up her name to symbolize their surrendering of her identity, and the husband suddenly became more important as the official public rep representative of two people, not just one. The rules were so strict that any wo American woman who married a foreigner immediately lost her citizenship. When women gained the right to vote in America in 1920, marriage seemed to change a lot more. Suddenly, each union consisted of two full citizens, although tradition dictated that the husband still ruled the home. By the late 1960s, state laws forbidding interracial marriage had been thrown out, and the last states had dropped laws against the use of birth control. So women were starting to take back the ownership of their bodies and their marriage, and black people were starting to get the same rights as a white man and white woman marriage. This isn't to say that there aren't still problems within society with race and things like that, but just saying that it was a little bit bigger of a step. By the 1970s, the law finally recognized the concept of marital rape, which up to that point was inconceivable as the husband, quote-unquote, owned his wife's sexuality. Stephanie Coote says that the idea that marriage is a private relationship for the fulfillment of two individuals is rarely new. Within the past 40 years, marriage has changed more than in the last 5,000 years. Gay marriage is rare in history, but it's not completely unknown. The Roman Emperor Nero, who ruled A.D. 54 to 68, twice married men in formal wedding ceremonies and forced the imperial court to treat them as his wives. In 2nd and 3rd century Rome, homosexual weddings became common enough that it worried the social commenter Juvenal, says Mary Alone, in A History of the Wife. Juvenile wrote, Look, a man of family and fortune being wed to a man. Such things before were much older will be done in public. He mocks such unions saying that male, quote unquote, brides would never be able to hold their husbands by having a baby. The Romans outlawed formal homosexual unions in the year 342, but Yale history professor John Boswell says he's found scattered evidence of homosexual unions after that time, including some that were recognized by the Catholic and Greek Orthodox churches. In one 13th century Greek Orthodox ceremony, the Order of the Psalmization of Same-Sex Union, the celebrant asked God to grant the participants grace to love one another and to abide unhated and not cause a scandal of all the days of their lives with the help of the Holy Mother of God and all thy saints. One of the reasons for the stunningly rapid increase in acceptance of same-sex marriage is because heterosexual, heterosexuals, oh my gosh, apparently I can't say heterosexual. Am I gay? Maybe. Is because heterosexuals, oh my gosh, whatever, you know what I'm saying, have completely changed their notion of what marriage is between a man and a woman says Stephanie Kuntz. We now believe it is based on love, mutual sexual attraction, equality, and a flexible division of labor, which is a big reason why we've seen 
divorce, you know, increase because these relationships were not are not all meant to last all the time and we're not forced being in these relationships where we have to stay with the person even if they're cheating on us and even if they're doing so and so but it also fosters this idea of marriages and relationships that are full of love and actually caring about one another although that I do believe that the our ideas of marriages have switched around a lot because obviously they have I do believe that we can base a lot of our personalities around dating and being one with someone. I mean, it's apparent that marriage and these relationships and these ties were so prevalent in our culture from the beginning. And especially things that didn't revolve around love until the most recent years. And I think that because of this idea of marriage being upheld by the patriarchy and being a man owning a woman and gay marriage not being fully accepted until recently paves this way, paves this idea for us to inherently want to ask all women when they're going to get married and for us to assume as children that these people, that these little humans are focused on getting married and focused on finding a relationship. How many times has someone asked a little kid, oh, do you have a boyfriend? Do you have a girlfriend? Oh, do you have a crush on them? Blah, 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 so on and so forth. As I said before, I love love, but I'm just way more focused on loving me and loving my life and my career before I even think about joining with someone else. And even with a lot of the people in my life that are in relationships, hell, I live with a goddamn couple. They talk about how they're not ready for marriage until way later because of their focus on themselves and their careers and wanting to be, you know, financially stable and stable in themselves before they add on another human into that relationship. And I think until recently, we've been focused on this idea that two halves make a whole and a relationship is a whole and you're just a half. But I know that recently the doctrine of you're a whole too. And you're a whole human before you join with someone else. And that's what we should be focusing on. Our ideas of gender roles have changed a lot in the past few years. But why are we still only asking women when they are going to get with someone? And why are we always assuming that it's a man? And why are we always assuming that these... That only two people can be in a relationship at once. Or only one man and one woman. And that there's not non-binary relationships and polygamous relationships and gay relationships and all of the above happening every day. It's so normal for men not to get married until later. But as soon as I hit 21, all of a sudden my individuality didn't matter as much to everyone. And like I said before, I'm great at dodging the question because usually I just ask back with, well... I love me first and why would I want to get married why would I want to ruin the relationship I have first also don't you want me to have a fantastic career first and so on and so forth this ties into the idea of of course infertility and having babies and how we have this set clock on earth and we need to be married by this time and have babies by this times and blah 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 so on and so forth there are so many ideas that weave into this meaning into this sentiment that people have to get married young and that women especially need to be focused on it as soon as they honestly get out of high school but I'm just here to tell you all my single friends out there 
it's okay if you're not in a relationship. I mean, honestly, sometimes it's better. Sometimes you have a lot of work to do on yourself and that's okay to admit. And to all my friends who are in relationships and not ready to get married yet, that's okay too. It's okay to take your time. Not everyone is on the same societal clock and we don't need to be. There's no reason to rush life. And to all my beautiful friends who are getting married, I am so happy for you. And I'm so excited to attend weddings because, as I said before, weddings are by far my favorite event to attend. And it's, if you feel ready and if you feel confident and if the relationship is good, then why not do it? I'm just here to say that everyone has different views on this whole idea of marriage. And just because you may view it as the most important thing of your life and you may view these families as needing to happen early on in life, that's not for everyone. And that's okay. It's okay to take your time. It's okay to focus on you. In fact, sometimes it's better because then you're going to find someone who truly loves you for who you are. Or if you've been in a relationship for a really long time and you guys aren't ready to get married yet and you're still working on yourself, I'm so happy that you found someone to love you through all those things. So know that no matter where you are in the relationship world, in the romance life, it's okay. And you can take your time. And if you're head over heels for someone, that's great. And I'm so happy for you. But stop forcing this idea on everyone else. And to all my family members who ask me when I'm going to get married, the answer will and always will be probably never. And then you'll laugh at me and feel uncomfortable and it'll be great. So I hope that this made you feel seen. And even if you are getting married soon or you're in a relationship and want to get married with someone soon, I hope this history of marriage help you learn that the marriage that you're about to get into is full of love and not based on property and how you can have a child. <laughs> so I love you guys so much. Um, if I could get married to all of you, you know that I fucking would. Um, please make sure that you follow me on Instagram at loudmouthpod. You'll keep up with all my adventures, see all my things that I'm going. I'm going to Florida next week. I'm very excited. Um, so keep up to, up to date with me on that. Make sure you follow my Twitter at loudmouth underscore pod. Let me know if there's anything you want to learn about, you know, the history of anything of that sorts, maybe the history of polygamy. That could be interesting. Um, Let me know on all the social media stuff. I'll put my sources down in the bio. I'll put a place where you can find out where you can get vaccinated so you can go get vexed the fuck up um, down in the bio as well. And also make sure you purchase my merch, baby. And I'm so excited because I'm working on a few things for merch. So stay tuned for that. Follow along. Make sure you follow the podcast. Make sure you smash that motherfucking five-star button. Leave a review. Tell me how much you love me. Tell me how much you want to get married to me, even though I hate marriage. No, I don't hate marriage. We've already talked about this, Madison. Okay, I'm leaving you now. I love you guys. I will talk to you next Wednesday. Bye.